Hello everyone, it's Chaz here from the Playsheet Podcast. I am sunning it up in sunny Cornwall right now, but Joe is going to be answering a question that came in from one of our listeners and taking you back through time to give you a little bit of history about the NFL in one of its most troubling periods. So sit back and enjoy. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned the Steagles very briefly on the show. Following that, We've had a request from one of our listeners to discuss in more detail how the NFL had to evolve to deal with the situation it faced during the Second World War. It's a great suggestion. This was undoubtedly one of the most interesting periods of the pre-Super Bowl era, and some of the decisions made at that time are frankly alien to the modern-day fan. If the topics I'm discussing today interest you, I'd strongly recommend John Eisenberg's The League. It's been a source of a lot of information I'm sharing today, and it's a great read. To start with, I think it's best to contextualise what the NFL was in the late 30s and how it fitted into US culture. The NFL had been around since 1920, after it was famously founded in Ralph Hayes' Hutmobile dealership. In those early years, the professional sports landscape was far different to how we view it today. Baseball, prize fighting and horse racing were the prevalent sports of a day. The National Hockey League existed but it would not have a US team until 1924 and was hardly on the radar of most Americans. NBA would not be founded until a year after the war. Major League Baseball had entered the national conscious, but generally, in the absence of the dominant Big Four sports leagues as we refer to them today, collegiate sport was extremely popular. The Army-Navy game of 1925 attracted a crowd of 70,000, while the Navy-Michigan football game a year later would draw over 83,000. College football was viewed not only as a popular spectacle, but part of a nation's soul. The qualities required to succeed on the field, self-sacrifice, stoicism and teamwork, were considered the qualities that the American man should aspire to. Much in the same way that the rugby fields of Oxford and Cambridge were used as character development tools for the officers of the British forces, the mud-bath gridiron of colleges across America were moulding the future leaders of the nation. With this in mind, for many, professional football was seen as a stain, replacing the noble qualities of collegiate football with greed and selfishness. Professional football was very much the challenger, and for most of the years leading up to the Second World War, it lived in the shadow of college football. The stars of the game were made in college sport. After graduating, many balked at playing paid football, opting instead to enter business or the army or anything to not be associated with professional football. In these years, the owners of the NFL franchises had to be extremely adaptive to survive. A number of innovations were made to make the product more exciting and create spectacle fans. There is so much detail to go into here, more than we can talk about in one podcast. But to simplify, in many ways, a comparison can be made between the pre-war National Football League and the XFL in 2019. Both made adjustments to the rules to increase the spectacle. College games in the 20s were generally low-scoring affairs, dominated by the single-wing formation. Quarterbacks were primarily blockers, with fullbacks leading run-first offences and sometimes run-only offences. Teams were often grind in the mud for an hour, with many games being decided by a single field goal or ending in low-scoring draws. One of the most famous rule changes made by the National Football League 
came as a result of a notorious play in the 1932 championship game between the Bears and the Portsmouth Spartans, who would later become known as the Detroit Lions. The rules, which were initially copied directly from college football, stated that the player throwing the ball had to drop at least five yards behind the line of scrimmage before a forward pass could be thrown. Bronco Nagurski connected with Red Grange for the game's only touchdown after retreating one step and the rest was history. The play stood and the rule was changed at the owners' meeting the next season. In a similar way, the XFL knew that to remain relevant, it had to do things differently to the National Football League, with an eye to making the sport more exciting for fans. Hence, they brought in rule changes like one, two and three-point conversions instead of a PAT. Led by George Preston Marshall, the NFL developed a razzmatazz and pomp it is now famous for. College football had pep rallies, but on the whole, it was a sensible, dignified affair. For the NFL's Eastern Conference season finale in 1932, George Preston Marshall took a full marching band, decked in burgundy and gold to New York City, and paraded them up 7th Avenue, blasting his newly composed hail to the Redskins. Compare this to the smash-mouth way that Vince McMahon launched the first iteration of the XFL in the early 2000s. While the 2019 Mark II version was perhaps not quite as in-your-face, it still innovated with concepts like on-pitch interviews of players during games. All of this leads us to the Second World War. The NFL, in just over 20 years, had certainly made inroads on the college game, but it was still a challenger. The league was in a constant flux of franchises being born and burning out within a season or two. For every mainstay, like the Bears or Giants, there were several teams like the Duluth Eskimos, the Milwaukee Badgers, or the Detroit Panthers who folded a couple of years after their inception. Even teams which managed to survive, like the Cardinals and Steelers, were not making much, if any, profit, and at this point their futures were in doubt. It was during the NFL's Sunday games on December 7th, 1941, that news began to break that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. Towards the end of a game between the Giants and Brooklyn Dodgers, the loudspeaker system would announce that all officers and men of the Army and Navy were to report to their stations immediately. War had reached American shores, and the sporting landscape would change. By the time training camps opened for the new season in 1942, more than 150 NFL players were in the service. That's nearly half of all players at the time, remembering that this was in the days before the two-platoon system, so players would line up on both sides of a ball, meaning that rosters were generally much smaller. The Giants had lost half of their roster and would field 20 rookies in this season, while the Steelers only dressed 16 players for their opening game. In the early days of the 1942 season, it was very much in the balance whether football operations would continue, or whether they would be suspended for the entirety of the war. Baseball, it would turn out, was the deciding factor. President Roosevelt sent a letter to Major League Baseball Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, basically giving him the green light to continue the sport throughout the war. In the letter, Roosevelt suggested that Landis keep baseball going because people ought to have a chance for recreation and to take their minds off work. The owners of the National Football League were not unanimous and some wanted the season shortened, but ultimately this was dismissed and the season went ahead. One of the owners who had wanted the season to be shortened was Art Rooney. His Pittsburgh Steelers were one of the teams on the precipice going into 1942. They hadn't had a winning season since joining the league as the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1933. Now, As previously mentioned, they only had 16 players suiting up for the season opener. And to make matters worse, 
Rooney was struggling to break even financially. Nevertheless, when his request to shorten the season was dismissed, Rooney went on a recruiting drive and finished the season with a franchise-best 7-4 record. This was good enough for second in the division, but despite this, he still wanted operations suspended going into the 1943 season. Again, when this was denied, he agreed in his words to go through the motions. However, the player exodus had worsened by this point. The Cleveland Rams had only a handful of players left on the roster, and finally they were granted approval to suspend operations. So this brings us to the Steagles. At a league meeting in June 1943, Art Rooney suggested that the Eagles and Steelers merge their depleted squads, forming what has famously been dubbed the Steagles. To understand this strange merger, we have to trace its roots back a couple of years earlier to 1940. For all of the National Football League's history, the Rooneys have been synonymous with the Steelers. Art Rooney, descended from Irish immigrants and born above a saloon in a poor, working-class suburb of Pittsburgh, embodied the team. His son, Dan Rooney, took the reins in 1988, and then his son, Art Rooney II, took ownership of the team in 2017. The Rooneys are the Steelers. What a lot of fans perhaps don't realise is that Art Rooney briefly sold the team and for a short period was actually co-owner of the Eagles. As I mentioned before, the Steelers were trash for most of their early years. What is now one of the most storied franchises in the entire Football League began as a very poor outfit. In 1940, the East-West Sporting Club, led by Alexi Thompson, wanted to buy a franchise. They approached Burt Bell, who had soon become commissioner of the NFL, but at that time owned the Eagles, another perennially weak team. Bell didn't want to sell, but thought that his close friend, Art Rooney, might. Rooney authorised Bell to act as his agent for a 25% commission, and Rooney sold the Steelers to the East-West Sporting Club for $160,000. With the proceeds from this, Rooney then bought a 50% stake in the Eagles to act as co-owner with his good friend Bell. Both parties had expectations and future plans for their franchises, but these would soon fall through for everyone. Thompson wanted to relocate the Steelers to Boston, George Preston Marshall had recently moved the Boston Braves to Washington, forming the league's first, in inverted commas, Southern team. Aside from wanting his franchise closer to his roots in Virginia, George Preston Marshall was forced to move by the utter indifference of Bostonians to professional football. While it is hard to imagine in a town which is now feverish in their love for the Patriots, when professional football first knocked on Boston's door, crowds were maxing out at around the 5,000 mark. The league, therefore, did not want the Steelers to relocate, preferring to maintain a presence in Pittsburgh, and Thompson's request was therefore declined. Bell and Rooney wanted to play home games in both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, splitting the team between the two cities and theoretically locking down the fan bases in two major territories. Again, this was denied by the league. All owners suddenly had a pang of regret for how things had turned out, and so Rooney started plotting. In March 1940, he took Thompson out to a Pittsburgh bar, got him drunk, and proposed they do a swap. Eagles for the Steelers. Rooney justified this by saying Philly was more artsy and more to Thompson's liking. By the end of the night, Thompson agreed, and the deal was done. In the space of three months, Rooney had gone from owning the Steelers, to being co-owner of the Eagles, to now being co-owner of the Steelers again. So back to the Steagles. The league was almost forced to agree to the merger between the Steelers and the Eagles. With the Cleveland Rams out, 
there was a genuine threat that there would not be enough teams to create a league if both the Eagles and Steelers were also out. The vote to pass it finished at 5-4, so it barely passed, but it was allowed. A proposal was also made by George Hallis to combine the two Chicago teams, the Bears and the Cardinals. Both of these squads, though, were fundamentally stronger than the Eagles and Steelers, and the league moved to disallow this. So how did things pan out? To be honest, from the get-go, Art Rooney was not too happy. The Steagles would play in the green and white of Philadelphia, they would train in Philadelphia, and four of their six games would be played in Philadelphia. But knowing that this would be fundamental to not only saving his team, but perhaps saving the league, Art Rooney accepted. Training sessions were more like train wrecks. Pittsburgh's head coach, Walt Kiesling, and the Eagles head coach, Greasy Neal, were meant to share duties, but they hated each other's guts. So Kiesling took the D and Greasy ran offense. The team was fundamentally built from players that were exempt from army duty. The leading receiver for the Steagles, Tony Bova, was blind in one eye. Center Ray Graves was deaf in one ear, while guarded Michaels was nearly totally deaf in both. Tailback John Butler was classified IVF by the draft board, making him physically unfit for military service due to his poor vision and bad knees. Somehow, this ragtag bunch went 5-4-1, drawing a crowd of 35,000 to their last game of the season at Shea Park. The winning record reflects the quality of opposition, but was still a remarkable achievement, all things considered. Interestingly, during this time, Major League Baseball flagged and attendances were far lower than they had been in previous years. This, combined with the cancellation of most of college football, meant that the NFL was flourishing like never before because of the war. In the next season, Art Rooney said that he would not run a merged team again and planned to play a full season as Pittsburgh. This was perhaps to be expected, given the boom in crowds at games, despite the suspect rosters. However, realising that there was clearly profit to be made, the Cleveland Rams unsuspended their operations and re-entered the league. A franchise called the Yanks began playing out of Boston, despite the calamitous forays the league had previously made into the territory. The league now had 11 teams, while 10 would have made scheduling so much easier, given the East-West divisional setup. As previously mentioned, the Chicago teams had been looking for a merger in 1943, and the depleted Cardinals continued to look for a partner. Rooney therefore agreed a second merger, and the card pits were formed. Unfortunately, this team had none of the success of the Steagles. They went 0-10, in the process throwing a record 41 interceptions, over four a game. This season record would not be broken until the Houston Oilers threw 48 interceptions in 1962, but this was across 14 games. No team in the history of the National Football League has since come close to throwing over four interceptions a game like the 1944 card pits did. To put things into context further, 41 interceptions they threw is 10 more than blind Jameis Winston threw in the 2019 season, and they threw them in six fewer games. And on that bombshell, I'm going to close this slightly shorter episode this week. It's been a pleasure talking about this particularly interesting moment in football history. As a reminder, if you'd like to read up more on it, I strongly recommend John Eisenberg's book, The League. Next week, I'll hopefully have Charlie back and we'll be two weeks away from the season opener, all things considered. Look forward to speaking to you then. All the best.